Hey, Dave here. Before diving into this episode, I wanted to mention a couple of things that hit home for me on this particular episode because I'm the one being interviewed. First off, I have a tendency to speak quickly when I get excited. This is likely me attempting to steer the flow of interaction by jumping the gun a bit. I sometimes do this with the comedy in my show, too. It's my pesky OCD nature rearing its ugly head. Next, everybody has a habit of falling into certain speech patterns. I wasn't sure what mine were until story editor Magic Brian pointed mine out to me, and I quote, As you're aware, everyone has a vocal tick. Yours happens to be a stream-of-consciousness type of conversation, which is great in many situations, but challenging in others. So, huge thanks to Brian for his efforts to edit my predisposition to go on and on and on. I'm flawed, I freely admit it. But hopefully what comes across during this conversation is my genuine love for the art form and an appreciation to the giants from our world whose shoulders I'm standing on, as well as a passion to share, learn, and grow from the generations who continue to explore and expand what street performing can be. I feel so lucky to have enjoyed such a wonderful adventure and so many amazing friendships through my association with the busking community over the years, and I thank you all for listening. All right, let's get to it. I think that's the key for any successful performer is when the audience is telling you what they see in you and you're able to hear it and absorb that and then reflect it, that's when you're going to be successful. They want you to be away. And if you can deliver on what their expectation is and play with it, then you're going to have great success. If you're trying to be something that you're not, they're going to tell you immediately. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm Magic Brian, your host for this very special episode. The Checkerboard Guy, David Aiken. We all know him or have heard of him. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you've heard him. Always projecting a positive energy, always in a good mood, and living in a world where everything is awesome. At 13, he got a start as a court jester in the medieval group, the Society for Creative Anachronism. He found juggling to be the perfect fit for his obsessive need to control things and discovered his joy of being in front of an audience. These elements propelled him into the world of street theater that carried him from the cute kid juggler in Spark Street Mall in Ottawa to the successful entertainer he is today. He's been part of the landscape of street theater for over three decades and has left his checkerboard mark on the community in many ways. From the superstar performer cards he makes to this very podcast you're listening to right now, David has shared his knowledge and joy of street performing with everyone he encounters. His enthusiasm for the genre has not diminished at all, and his desire to continually create and contribute to this world is infectious. Hence, my involvement in this podcast. Glenn Singer and I sat down with David in his hotel room at the Ottawa Buskers Festival to find out more about what makes his checkerhead tick, what drives him to keep creating, and the best parts of living in a world filled with so many great stories from the pitch. So, Dave. Glenn. Slide in a little bit there, Glenn. Yeah, come in a little closer. Make me happy. I'm going to squeak your chair. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do... I'm gonna, yeah, there's a squeaky chair. <laughs> I'm going to do what I do. What do you do, Brian? I want to say that we are sitting here in a hotel room in Ottawa for the Ottawa Busker Festival. It is... Uh, 12-21. David's birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday, birthday man. Cheers. 48. Let's do that again. And uh, we're dual interviewing the latest inductee. I'm going to let Glenn Singer lead the interview. I might chime in from time to time. So... David, uh, where should we start? Well, it's interesting that we happen to be in Ottawa because this is where I started performing 35 years ago. Right. I started at 13 years old, taught myself how to juggle, was involved with the 
medieval group, the Society for Creative Anachronism, right. who allowed me to be the court jester of sorts. Like a renaissance kind of thing? Uh-huh. And so they had these priests, and they had these fights, and the, all this stuff, and well, they were trying to figure out what to do with me, because it was something that my older brother had gotten involved in, and he was always sort of a little bit outside of the norm anyway, and when I joined it, it was more sort of like, I wanted to do what my big brother was doing, because it seemed cool, and they went, well, you could be a page, or you could be a jester, or you could be whatever, and so the jester thing sort of worked, because I liked the juggling thing. I liked the pattern-oriented nature of juggling to begin with. And I liked the attention that I got. It's like, I think most performers crave attention from people, and I was no different. What did you like about that pattern? For juggling? Yeah. I think it really appealed to my OCD nature, the idea of being able to control objects and be in control of what was going on in the context of a juggling pattern really appealed to me. And it frustrated me when I couldn't do it, and that forced me to practice. And so I got better at the skill because I wanted to be able to master the control aspect of the pattern. Did you speak? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Did you speak in that uh, vernacular, that Renaissance vernacular? I never really caught on for me, but they seemed to accept me for whatever it was I was doing anyway, so it was fine. It was good. And it was just fun. It was fun to be in the center of attention. It was fun to be getting praise from people who were significantly older than me by 10 or 15 years. It was great to be acknowledged as having a skill that I'd worked at that they appreciated. And that recognition sort of fed that uh, craving for approval. Did you start juggling because you wanted to do it as a performance or did you just something you Maybe both, a bit of both. I can't really differentiate between the two because it was half of it was really wanting to achieve this skill thing that was just outside of my reach. Mm-hmm. And part of it was like I could see it being the vehicle for being able to perform. And so that was a really interesting hmm. combination. Yeah, that's odd. I don't know that a 13 year old would recognize it necessarily that as a vehicle for performance. You would see it as a, a fun thing to do and not realize that that's a possibility. Well, I think as a lot of people, I mean, magicians are a great example of this as well. It's that taste of, I've got something that you don't understand, and that creates this amazement. Like, the spectator looks at a magic trick and is amazed. Mm-hmm. And I had the amount that I needed of that within the context of juggling. Now, I think you get a greater response from a magic trick than you get from a juggling trick when you're at similar levels in the skill. So a magician who's at level, say, five of one, two, three, four, five, and yeah. your one is the best and five is the lowest, well, a level five magician and a level five juggler, the magician's going to get more appreciation than the juggler will. But even at a level five juggling, I was still getting what I wanted, which was really great because I craved that kind of attention. I craved that kind of approval, and I got it. And so that pushed me to get better at juggling and a variety of other skills that were sort of juggling-related. What kind of juggling had you been uh, exposed to? Uh, well, when I first got started, not much at all. Like, I'd seen a little bit on TV, and I'd gone to a Renaissance festival in Minnesota because I used to live in the Twin Cities, and so I'd seen the Flying Karamazov brothers there, 
but I even when I'd seen the Flying Caramonts Brothers, I wasn't really cognizant of it being something that I wanted to pursue. So it was just sort of this vague memory in the back of my mind. It wasn't something that I was going, oh, it would be like those guys. It was more, oh, yeah, that was something that I remember seeing. And then I was, like, intrigued by the inability to do the skill that I thought I should be able to do, and that is what pushed me forward to try to make it better. I think it's interesting that you saw them. Mm. <laughs> well, they're... <laughs> That make, makes me think that in some way you weren't even aware of they infected you with that. Uh, well, I, at the same festival, excellence. I saw Puke and Snot, who were these great sword fighting duo, and they had a much bigger show than the Karamazovs did at the Renaissance Festival. And I saw Sack Theater at the same Renaissance Festival. And so I was exposed to all these different styles of performance, and then I ended up being a juggler, which, I don't know, happenstance or fade or whatever you want to call it, it just sort of fell into my lap because I think, again, it goes back to that whole need to control things. Juggling was a great vehicle for that aspect of my personality, along with it being a potential vehicle for being in front of an audience, which is something that also appealed to me. How old were you when you saw them? Oh, I would have been maybe 11. Yeah. So you're just a kid watching stuff. Yeah. So what happened after the uh, Renaissance? stuff that you did well the renaissance festival stuff happened in sort of the fall of 81 and then in the spring of 82 i got out to the festival of spring here in ottawa which was an arts festival crafts festival so fine arts festival lots of different booths outdoor festival a great place where people were going anyway and a great place to go and put a hat out and chuckle and it was suggested to me by friends of the family that this might be a place where you could do your show. This could be a place where you could, you know, practice your juggling in front of an audience and maybe make some money. So I went out and I put a hat out and I juggle. And if anybody stopped and watched, I'd run through my repertoire of tricks, which at the time was minimal. But it was the sort of the seed of something happening where I could talk to an audience and make a connection. So who said put out a hat and you can make money? So that wasn't weird. Family friends said We've seen people playing guitars okay. in Spark Street. They put a guitar out. They make money. Okay, that's yeah. Because it just seems it's not something that you. I didn't consciously think of it. Right, but also unless someone had seen it before, they wouldn't suggest putting out a hat. They wouldn't think of that as an opportunity to make money. And it happened that these family friends said, "We've seen people on Spark Street with a guitar case out in front of them. They play and they get all these tips. You're young. You're cute. If you put a hat out and you." juggle, maybe you can do the same thing, right. and maybe you'll do better because you've got that sort of youth cute factor going sure. for you, and maybe that'll work out, and it did. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some people would give me money, and some people wouldn't, and if people asked me how to juggle, I would stop and I would teach them the skill that I had learned, because at that time, I was so excited by it that I just wanted to teach anybody. Like, I really just enjoyed the skill, and I really just enjoyed the connection with the audience, and I really just wanted to have more of what I was craving and enjoying through the skill and through being in front of a crowd. And, you know, that first day I went out for the Festival of Spring, I made a bunch of money. Like, the family friend who took me out gave me a $5 bill and said, this is your first $5 tip. Go out and have fun. And so I made more than that $5 tip. And I'd go out and I'd juggle for like 15 or 20 minutes and I'd make some money and then I'd go and hang out with some friends that I'd made at the festival. And then I'd go out and do it again, and I'd go out and do it again. About three or four times later, I was like, oh, I've got a whole bunch of money. And this is early 80s, and so early 80s is perfect time for a young teen to go to a video arcade and 
pop those quarters that he just made in the hat into a video game and play for an hour and go, I have discovered the secret to life. <laughs> like, I have just discovered... The source of endless quarters. Exactly. I have found it. I am, I'm in. I'm full. This is like the, of you. I know I can play video games forever. And it really did. I mean, that was really the launch pad for me taking off into going, oh, okay. So I can, without any training, without any real experience, without any kind of awareness of what I was doing, I was already making money. And then over the course of the summer of 82, a couple of people came through Ottawa, and I saw them. I don't even remember who they were, but they were like people who were doing shows, who were doing street performing and passing the hat. And I started to go, oh, oh, that's how you do it. Is there a regular pitch here? In Ottawa, sure. There was, at the time, I was doing shows on Spark Street during the daytime. Like at lunchtime in Spark Street uh, in Ottawa, the government workers come out of the buildings and all the people who were working downtown come out of the building and spread out into this fantastic pedestrian mall and have their lunch. And so if you caught them at the right time, you could do shows and you could make quite good money. And if you timed it right, if you knew, okay, the second Friday is the payday and you got out in sequence with that payday, you could time it so that they had money in your pockets and you'd make money from it. But beyond that, it was, okay, I just want to be out and doing it all the time. And then... After working on the Spark Street Mall, I got a summer where I hung out walking distance to the pitch at the Byward Market, which was more the evening pitch. So from 6 to 10 or 11, you could do shows. And I had the luxury of there being no one else in town. And I could go out and I could do three, Is four. Is your 13 still? 14, 15, 14. 16. Like at that point, there was no one else in town. So I could go out and do four or five shows a night. Yeah. And... There were all sorts of things involved. A, I was loving getting better at the skill. B, I loved just doing the shows and being in front of an audience. C, I was making money mm-hmm. at an alarming rate for a 14, 15, 16-year-old. I was just making money in like volumes. You know, It jumped. So you go, I can do four balls, and now I can do five balls. And when I went to five balls, the money increased. I'm going to start juggling fire. The money increased. I need to get a unicycle. The money increased. It was like thunk, 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 thunk. every time I stepped up the game, it got better. And then in eighty one is when I started. Eighty two is when I started to see a few people. Eighty three, I saw Johnny Toronto and I saw Waldo. They came through Ottawa on Canada Day, and I saw them do shows that were like, oh, that's how a show works. That's how it works. Yeah. And I was strongly influenced. I wanted to be Waldo, but I never could be because Waldo was Waldo. And I watched Johnny Toronto, and he had a great, functional, fabulous unicycle juggling show. Great entertainer. And I was like, oh, I, maybe I could try to be like these guys. And that steered me towards that. And then I just practiced and practiced and practiced because there was no one else in town. To Why was there no one else in town? There's just nobody was there? here. There were literally... There, were, there was a working pitch. There was People a working pitch, but there was no one else here. It just seems strange to me that if, if it's a working pitch, people just don't know to come through. Nobody knew. Because it so they was didn't fate. Know. When did, it was fate. When did checkerboards come into the scene? So in 1982, 83, checkerboard van sneakers were coming on the scene. And in 1984, two things happened that really were pivotal in my memory. One was Fast Times at Richmond High, in which Sean Penn played Jeff Spicoli. Jeff Spicoli in the movie... 
wears checkerboard vans and is smoking pot in his van and it's like this iconic so movie. Cool. Yeah, it's this totally iconically cool movie from the early 80s. And the second thing that happened was the 1984 Van Halen tour where David Lee Roth wore checkerboard vans during the tour as his signature. Like, that was part of the whole yeah. cultural icon at the time. Like, what was happening was that. And I first saw them early 80s, and I was like, they look kind of goofy and stupid. Might have been around the same time I went to that first Renaissance Festival when I was about 11. Because there was a neighbor kid who come from California, and bands come from California, and so I'd seen the shoes, and they were like, those are kind of, oh, I'm not sure about those. Wow. What's going on with that? But then the more I saw them, the more I was like, I want to get a pair. And I got a pair, and then around the same time, I started making, and this has to do with Waldo, Waldo, when I first saw him, was wearing the wraparound pants. He was wearing uh, stripy, vertical stripe, black and white stripes with that tiger print mm, sort of a shirt that was right. a sleeveless shirt. And he just looked super cool. So I Swashbuckling. Yeah, swashbuckling. Total pirate. And the case wore those wraparound pants. But did they? I didn't yeah. know about that. But those pants were sort of iconic at the time as well. And so I found a pair, looked at them, copied them. And was sewing my own stuff at that point. So I, How I, old are you? 13, 14, 15. Making stuff. I like um, the way when I ask you how old you are, it's always 13, 14, 15. Everything is like well, three it is, years. It's a blur. It's a blur yeah. at that first part. Because I mean, yeah. 35 years in, that beginning, those early pivotal stages. So like it was around was, that range of time yeah. when you were figuring out all this stuff. Well, I made costumes. From season to season. Yeah. Well, I made costumes when I first got started with the Renaissance people. And I made my own juggling balls and I made my like I whatever it needed to happen I made could you already sew at that point yeah my mom got me a, a sewing machine when I was like really young like she showed me how to thread a machine when I was about six or seven so Ikea was putting out checkerboard fabric around the same time these checkerboard shoes were coming out and I got some of the checkerboard fabric and I made these checkerboard wraparound pants and I had the shoes and the pants and then somebody gave me a checkerboard bandana and then it was just boom that was set. It was like a uniform. It, it, again, maybe it's fate, maybe it's happenstance, whatever you want to call it, but that black and white symmetrical pattern appealed to my nature of wanting things in order and in control. Yeah. And It's funny because it, 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 it's in order, but yet it's opposing. Sure. It's completely, it's black and white. But it's definitely a... It's an orderly system. Yeah. That stands out. And goes back to the my love of patterns, which is why I started juggling. And so this pattern became something iconic for what I wanted to do. And it allowed me to be like, okay, this is going to be my uniform from now on. Like Steve Jobs had a black turtleneck and blue jeans. That was his uniform. Well, this became my uniform. And when I started working in this uniform at the Byward Market in Ottawa, and worked at it every day, every day, all summer long, people started to recognize the pattern and the juggling and the show, and they started referring to me as, oh, you know that guy, that guy who wears checkerboards and juggles. Checkerboard guy. Boom. The checkerboard guy came out of a very organic, natural process of me doing this, and it became that. And that's how that happened. And... You know, I ended up, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18. I, I made enough money to buy my own car. I am an idiot because I like strange cars. So the first car I bought was a Mini, an Austin Mini from like 1974. And then I got another Mini and I had it chopped and turned it into a convertible. And it had a checkerboard 
trunk and a trekkerboard hood and that matched what I was doing on the street and so the car also helped represent what I was doing anyway so I'd park it in the market and I would go do shows in the market and people would see the car and they'd know I was there and they'd come and see the shows and boom 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 so boom, how was the show developing over this time like were you you know you're saying you you had fire you make more money at the unicycle make more money what about the content of the show the context of the show was really I started to learn how to listen to the audience Whenever they said, through their applause and their approval, this is what we want you to be. And it was because of simply repetition over and over and over again. People helped shape me to who I am. And I think this goes to another really valid point of all street performers is that the audience that you initially perform for trains you to be the performer you're going to be. That's the foundation upon which your career as an entertainer goes from. Because... The Ottawa audience, where I learned how to perform, they wanted me to be this, and that's what I delivered. Mm -hmm. And so when I come back to Ottawa or anywhere in this kind of part of the country, I seem to be able to deliver on what an audience wants more than anywhere else in the world. Right. Because you grew up as a performer here. I learn what that audience yeah. wants me to be, but sure. it's it's built upon the foundation of, of what the Ottawa audience taught me to be. Yeah. Do you remember when you first started having the audience finish your sentences? That's an interesting thing. And it wasn't actually, how to put it, I, I wasn't aware of it initially. And what's happened is that my show has become very much a game in which it's a call and response kind of tactic. And so when I present something and they get to finish the sentence, that's when it's the most successful. They have to buy into that concept and buy into that parameter for it to really work and it came out of and I thought about this after like years and years later I was doing this interview in Japan with a newspaper and they said what is it that you want from your audience what is the response you're looking for when you're performing for your audience and I thought back and I went well I was the kid in school who always sat in the front of the class and it wasn't because I was trying to brown nose it was because I was genuinely excited about knowing so, when the teacher asked a question and I knew the answer, I was like, oh, I know that. Ask me, because I know the answer to that question. And I, I, I'm excited. Me, 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 me. Ask me. I know, I know, I know. And so, I try to generate that energy in the context of my audience. I set up a parameter and a game that is so easy to understand that they're on the edge of their seat going, oh, oh, I know the answer. I know the answer. I know the answer. And so that developed over time, and it wasn't a conscious choice. It was more the way things evolved that that was the... It's a natural way. Yeah, it was a natural, really organic way that it just happened. And when they started answering those questions or finishing my sentences, this little light went off, and I was like, oh, that's who I am. That's how I present myself. That's how I see the effective tools from the street performance world, take them into myself, and then reinterpret them in a way that the audience gets to enjoy through the vehicle that is who I am. Like, what is it that I do? I set up the question and let the audience answer it. How can I take that street performance skill and incorporate it into this technique? That's the way I do it. And so you had to morph an idea through this filter and put it back out. And so you started to sort of, you know, be influenced by people, be influenced by the 
you know, the first sources I've seen and, and see what those were and absorb that technology. I mean, really as a technique and a formula from a street performance perspective, own those things, understand those things, but then try to run them through the filter of, I want to try to create a calm response effect with my audience. And how do I do that effectively? Uh, this is how I do it or try it a hundred times until you figure it out. And because there was, there really wasn't anyone else in Ottawa street performing at the time. I could run a hundred shows and fail because I was still living at home. I mean, I mean, still in your teens, you don't have a lot at stake. It doesn't matter if you fail. Exactly. So I could fail in a beautiful way and have these things develop organically in a way that most other performers don't have as an opportunity. When did you start touring the show outside of Ottawa? Uh, when I got a car, uh, when I got my driver's license, so I was 16, uh, 16, 17, 18. And then, it's always the three. Yeah, around those, around that age. 30, 40, 15, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Um, I remember going to Montreal for the Montreal Jazz Festival, and then I went to the Baltimore's Inner Harbor and did shows there. And that's like mid to late 80s. And then I started doing more extensive touring when the busking festival circuit really started happening, which was 1988, when Halifax took off. It was 87 that Halifax first started, and 88 was the year that I applied and got in. And there were three festival tours, so I, it was Ottawa, Fredericton, and then Halifax. And I, that was the first year that I really toured with the show. And then... Uh, I remember seeing you there uh, uh, across a field. You were doing a show. Your car was there. And I'd never seen you before. From across a field, you had a bona fide brand. You could just tell. You know, the checkerboards <laughs> were all over your show. And you could look across at this act and see what it was about. From across a field, you didn't need to even be able to hear what was going on. You could see that that was the checkered board guy from across the field. Yeah, it's, and it's been a really powerful trademark or iconic look because any performer in the world of street performing must get this, where they go, oh, you do a straight jacket escape. I remember seeing this guy in New Orleans. You that guy? Or, hey, yeah, I saw this guy riding a horse like you in a show in Dallas. Was that you? Maybe it was and maybe it wasn't. But whenever somebody says, hey, were you here? Because I remember seeing the checkerboards. I can always say, yeah, that was me. Because it's always me. And it's become this really strong, powerful identifier or brand. I mean, you use that word, but that brand and that marketing has allowed me to uh, be successful not only in the street performance world, but in other markets as well. You do have a strong marketing sense. Did you always do your own promo? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't do it as much anymore. Like I realized I hit a ceiling at my own ability and wanted to have other people take it beyond what I was going to be capable of. And so I've spent money on getting other people to do other things for me. But usually what happens is I get them to get it to a certain stage and I go, great, I got it. Let me take your ideas and push it further because I don't mind spending the time to get it to where I want. But if I spend the money to get you to take it to that point, it's going to cost me three times the amount of money you've already charged me. And I'm capable of going yeah. for these steps further. 
So I don't know if it's an intuitive sense or if it's uh, uh, just from experience or from having done it a long time, but I can sort of see what is needed and put those pieces in place. And it's been really successful. It's been able to take this package that's worked well in the street performance world and put it into a corporate world or put it into a cruise ship world or wherever else it is. I think you also have a knack for for branding and catchphrases. One thing I remember off of your card or off of your brochure, I don't know if you still use it, you probably do, was a great picture of you and the caption, good, clean, funny. A friend of mine came up with that. That's a nice catchphrase. Well, he, this is, and this has happened more and more later and later in the career, but this friend who came up with that catchphrase, a guy named Dave Dushman, he was working as an entertainer. He called himself the rubber chicken guy. And he came up to me and he said, I remember seeing you on Canada Day in Major Hill Park in Ottawa and sitting and watching your show with a friend of mine. And I looked at what you were doing and I said, I'm going to do that. That's what I want to do. And this year in Kingston, 2016, within 15 minutes of getting to the green room, three different young performers came up to me and said, you're the checkerboard guy, right? I was like, yeah. Yeah, you're the reason why I'm doing this. You're the reason. I saw you when I was, you know, a kid kid, like six, seven, eight in three years or whatever yeah. it was but I remember seeing you when I was a kid and I remember wanting to do what you were doing and that's why I'm doing it now right. and that's happened more and more you know over the course of the years I don't know if it's a, a gift or a curse but it's it's, it's a virus you got it from the caves and from Waldo and you spread it all <laughs> I've spread that yeah. virus around to other people and really I mean if, if you look at it in those terms I took a real positive energy that I got from these other performers I absorbed it, and I, what I try to do when I do shows and when I am in the world in general is to project a real positive energy of this is what you can do, that you can do this. I want you to be involved in what I'm doing because I'm having so much fun doing this. And if it's infectious and it you know, catches on with somebody else who has the bug for wanting to be an entertainer, and it's, it feels weird to accept that kind of responsibility for that, but I think I'm a part of a much bigger tradition. And if what I can do is put my stamp on the tradition and to encourage other people to carry that tradition beyond where I'm at with it, all the better. Simply quiet. And all of a sudden got very, very quiet. As I wait for Glenn to say the next wise thing. I know everyone was waiting and I liked the quiet. The quiet was good. That's the quiet sign. The reason I didn't say anything is because I had a thought that might be inappropriate to ask at this point. Go ahead. Uh, I think I mentioned swashbuckling. You were moved by Waldo's style and Johnny Toronto's style and the case. Uh, Is anybody inspiring at that magnitude that you see these days? In a different way. Yeah, it would be different, right? at this point because now you've seen so much been, well it's also been through it yeah. well and not that it's not it's not only that but it's like what inspires me more is that people with a genuine excitement for it still because I had this great conversation with Dave and Tobin from uh, they were the Flash before and the, the Red Trousers Red shows now and 
we were in Dundas the year that you were there, which was like four years ago, five years ago, something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like uh, 2011, 12, something like that. And they came up to me and they said, you know, it's still fun watching your show because we see so many guys who get older in the game and they become crops, crusty old performers. And you still really look like you're having fun with it. And I was like, it's because I am. I still really am having fun with it. I really enjoy the process. So for me, I mean, I had a great conversation with Fraser Hooper, who's another great, he's a silent clown, he's a great clown. And I did a, a clown workshop with him in Toronto a couple of years ago. And he came, he was there when you were there and with me hanging out in Vancouver after the Victoria yeah. Festival. Yeah, and we were yeah, hanging yeah. out at the house. Yeah, and we, did, we did Whistler with him. So. Right, right. And we were having a great time. And I was saying to him how I still feel like I have things to learn. Like I'm still a sponge. I haven't finished yet. I'm not done. So the people that inspire me the least are the people who treat it as a job, who just go out and run through the motions. And the people who inspire me the most are the ones who are treating it like an adventure, who are looking at the venue and seeing it as a world of opportunity. Well, that's really what I wanted to know was, are any young performers out there surprising you and inspiring you? Yes. The short answer is yes. Who? Uh, um, you had to think about that for a while. I did. I did because... I, having just come from uh, Kingston and seeing some performers who were very uninspiring and then others who are genuinely inspiring. I worked with a woman in, uh, in Kingston. It was her very first street performance festival. And she was doing a slack rope show. And she inspired me because she was full of such sincerity and genuine desire to please an audience. And when I see that, I don't care if the show is lacking in technique and is a bit clunky and a bit stumbly and is not that quite there yet. It's that their personality is so honest and so pure and so sincere that I, I, I referenced it. I said, you're like unicorns in Harry Potter. I just want to drink your blood because I will be able to stay young through your enthusiasm for the art form. Mm -hmm. And so are they transporting me to a different place because they're doing something completely different? No, but they're just so genuinely excited about it. Like over the course of my career, I've done a juggling show. And then after that, I did a show which was very much in the style of SAC Theater, which is like a storytelling show. I did one where I told the story of King Kong. I did another one where I told a Japanese fairy tale with a friend of mine from Japan. In Japan. Uh, no, it was all street performing. I did King Kong on the streets at the Edmonton Street Performers Festival in 2000, 2001. I did a collaboration? Collaboration with a friend of mine who is a musical theater director, producer in Vancouver, and we teamed together to do the show, and it was super fun. And then I teamed up with a guy named Iori Mikumo in uh, Shizuoka in 19... No, sorry, 2001, and we did a show called The Peach Boys, which was based on a Japanese fairy tale, which was based on the same kind of premise of we're going to get audience members to play the roles in the story and we're going to be the directors who run them through it. And so you're not using props, you just... Well, you were completely using props, but it's mostly costumes and silliness. Right, right, right. I'm saying you're not using juggling props. Exactly. Just... And then we did, uh, the year after that, 2002, I did a show with Iori and a guy in uh, Edmonton named John Elliott, 
and we put together a show called The Executives that was based on these three guys who were dressed as executives. One guy had a yellow tie, one guy had a red tie, one guy had a blue tie, but we all looked like we could have gone into any of the office buildings in downtown Edmonton and gone to an insurance adjustment job. Mm -hmm. But what we were doing is what happens when you give executives toys and let them play? And that was the whole premise of the show. And in Edmonton, I met another friend, and we did a show called Lab Antics. And then after that, I did another show that was uh, based on another friend that I met in Edmonton called The Juggling Sherpas, where the idea was these two Sherpas get stranded in Edmonton, and they find a book on street performing, and they read the book, and they try to follow everything by the book to make a perfect street show, to make enough money to get back to Nepal to get home, basically. So... Or heroes were these all like one-offs for like a festival or were these shows that you worked in this for, first season up to or? this point up to this point they're all one-offs and then I did the Cactus Show which was uh, this Canadian Australian Daredevils uh, United Syndicate with Jules yeah. and we did that in Kingston one year as a one-off and then we went let's try it again and we did it at three other festivals the following year and then I did, started doing the show with Jean-Michel Paré, which is called The Bang Bang Boys. That show is more of a traditional, as opposed to the shows you were talking about earlier, where there's these storytelling shows that are... The, the, yeah, this is very much a, a more traditional, like, yeah, like, you're taking, show. like, some of your stuff, Jean-Michel, some of his stuff, you're finding ways to combine those things and also find new routines for each other. The beautiful thing about The Bang Bang Boys, which isn't the checkerboard guy, isn't, for him, it's the, uh, the Flying Dutchman. But the beautiful thing about this is it's, the characters are being presented as two old vaudevillians. Mm-hmm. And these old vaudevillians are drawing on their history, which is very much what we're doing. So it feels like a really natural place to be because putting out something that is tried and true, that we both are familiar with, but because we both bring this history to it that is more than three decades old, it has a certain resonance that somebody who's just first starting out, it just doesn't exist. Yeah. One thing that we've skipped over a little bit is Japan. Sure. First trip to Japan was in 1990. I went for the Hanahaku Festival in Osaka, which is a big expo. I was there for eight weeks and did well enough there that I went back again in 91, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98. I was there for all the way up until 2005, two or three times a year. 1994, met my now wife in Osaka, and we've been married just about 20 years. How'd you meet her? She worked for the entertainment company that hired me, Okay. and she thought I was gay when she first picked me up from the airport, <laughs> and she thought I was safe. Well, I'd broken up with a girlfriend about five months earlier, and I don't know if it's a thing that guys do or girls do or whatever, but I decided I need a change. I'm going to do something different. So I grew a mustache and I had a little soul patch just under my, my lip. And then my hair was all like long and wavy and I got I had my earring. And I was like, uh, I was a pirate. I was very much a swashbuckling pirate. And Coming back to the whole... Yeah, pirate. Arr! And uh, I show up in Japan and she's going, well, his hair is quite long. He's got an earring. And his stuff seems very, very tidy. And, hmm, I think he might be gay. Well... It was funny, actually. It was you were there at that festival, the Matsuri Haku, Matsuri Haku in Ise. Yeah, and uh, I remember Glenn put it beautifully. He goes, "I'm tending my garden," like he plant a seed with a potential interest, love interest, or a woman. <laughs> he, he would tend his garden. 
I have no memory of that. This is fantastic. <laughs> great. This is a beautiful way of referencing it because, like, we were at this a great I'm event. My garden. We were at this great event where these, you know, corporate pavilions. There was Fujitsu. There was uh, Guriko. There was national pavilions and national pavilions. So we and were so, in a community of over a hundred uh, production technical uh, people and, and lighting designers and sound designers. Every pavilion, and there were pavilions all over this big, 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 big site. Each pavilion had a team of hostesses that were gorgeous young women. And so as an entertainer and slash visitor to this expo, we'd all end up going around and checking out all these expositions, like all the pavilions and everything else. And every so often, you'd run into somebody who was really cute and really interesting, and you'd try to start up a conversation in broken English slash Japanese, and it wouldn't work. And you'd have all these sort of like, sort of half conversations started, and this whole notion of Glenn saying, it's like my garden, I just need to go tend to my garden and see if I can, you know, maybe a little fertilizer here or a little fertilizer there. Lots of fertilizer. Lots of fertilizer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and see I what do, happens. I do remember. It was slightly different for me. I think Dave resonated more with the Japanese culture. I ran into more Slavic people. I hung out with the Poles and the Czechs, and, and there were parties almost every night yeah. that were well lit with great music at these pavilions. And it was just super fun. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there was internationally, so no one spoke. Well, and, and we went to the next one. We went to the one in 93 in Taejong, too, and that was even more so because... Because it, that was Korea, but in... Oh, 94. 93 was the one before, the year before. Oh, was it? Yeah, and then 94 was Matsuriaku. Okay. Huh. I, I, yeah. I, they all kind of blend. Yeah, but the... Uh, everybody was Yeah, yeah, three years. You're doing... All the performers, you're doing shows in these other languages. Everybody's studying Japanese and Korean, but Dave was studying at a much more committed and deeper level, and you're fluent in Japanese now. Now, yeah, it's really worked out well, because from 1990 to about 2005, there was a demand for performers to go to Japan to perform variety shows, and about 2005 what happened was the Japanese domestic performers who'd seen people there from about the late 80s to 2005 they had a 15 year period to develop into great entertainers in and of their own right and so the demand for western performers to come in and do these shows that nobody in Japan could do was eliminated because all these people in Japan could do those shows but then Around that same time is when I started getting more and more into cruise ships. And when I started doing cruise ships, it really took off for me in about 2005, 2006. And then in 2012, 13 is when Princess Cruises started sending ships to Japan to try to capture a Japanese market. And because of my experience of having been there for 15 years and learned the language and, you know, could do my show in Japanese, all of a sudden I was an asset for these Japanese cruise seasons that was fairly specific. There's not a lot of people who can do shows in both languages successfully and yeah. then blend the two languages successfully. Mm -hmm. And so three years ago when I started to do these shows in both languages, it was a struggle because if you try to do a show, your head is working in English and then you try to switch to Japanese, what ends up happening is you say what you're saying in English and then you switch to Japanese and you translate what you just said into 
Japanese. Yeah. And what happens is that the flow of your show is destructive. Yeah, the timing, the pace is all screwed Everything is fucked up. Punchlines yeah. aren't right. Everything is messed up. the same thing twice. And it's wrong. The, yeah. the biggest compliment I got from this last cruise that I just did was from uh, English-speaking passengers who came up to me and said, the thing we noticed more about your show than any other show on the ship was that you did your show in both languages, but it never felt like you were translating. Right. It always felt like you were doing your show, but you were doing your show in two languages. Mm-hmm. So there were moments when it was very Japanese, but we kind of got what was going on, so we didn't need to know what you yeah. were saying. And there were moments when you were speaking English when we totally got what you were saying, but the Japanese kind of got what you were saying, right. and you never had to break your pace. That's the beauty is when the Japanese people kind of feel like they speak better English. Boom. Because of the way they're flowing with your show. And this comes back to the whole call and response thing. It's like you get the nature of the game that I'm presenting. You understand that here are the parameters of the game that we are throwing out to you. Now, whether it's in English or Japanese, and this last cruise, I was people from France and Quebec. So I was doing it in French, English, and Japanese. Oh, cool. And it was awesome. Triple threat. Triple threat. Bam! That was happening. It's been lucky. It's been a lucky journey. Like. I remember going back to the very first trip I went to Japan. I was there for the Hanahaku Festival in 1990 with myself, the Natural Theatre Company from England, who are great roving performers, uh, Ned Kelly, who was doing his still walking character and stuff, and the Passing Zone. These guys, when I first saw them, first met them, I looked at them and I went, you guys have a business plan. You have a destination in mind and you're taking steps towards what your plan is and to your goal. And for me, I just loved what I was doing. I had, uh, it was funny, we were talking about Vancouver earlier and the PE. The Pacific National Exhibition is a fair in Vancouver and the creative director of the program sat me down at one point and he said, okay, if what you like doing is driving, then get in your car and drive. If what you need to do is to get in your car and get to Seattle, then get in your car and head south from Vancouver because that's how you go to get to where your destination is. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I looked at the passing zone and I always went, oh, okay, you've got a destination in mind. And I looked at myself and I was, was like, I just like driving. I really I like, like driving. checkered clothes and driving around the car. <laughs> With checkerboards on it. <laughs> So I'm going to bring this up because you had mentioned it earlier, Glenn, how this whole Busker Hall of Fame thing is kind of my baby. It's like something that I started with Robert before he died. And I started it because I wanted to capture Robert's voice while he was still with us. Thank you for doing that. And I think we did an okay job of it. We could have done it better had we known how to do things better. But But that's all in the can, man. We have a lot of Robert. Recorded, and which is great. It's wonderful. Then in 2013, after he died, we inducted him into the Busker Hall of Fame. Then it was Nils and Chris Lynham who got inducted. And then in 2015, who was it? Kazo. Kazo got inducted. And oh. then this year it was... Uh, JP and and I got inducted, and you were asking, is that weird? Is it weird? It's. A, I was asking, is it weird that this is your baby, 
and uh, your your I call it Buskerhof, the Busker Hall of Fame. Yeah, uh, is your your idea that came out of wanting to preserve recordings of Robert, and then wanting to record this whole world of uh, buskers around the world. Two very good ideas, and I'm glad you're doing. But is it weird for you to be uh, in a position of being recognized by an organization that you essentially began? Absolutely. Without and, question. And I think, in a way, the whole busker hall of fame thing is i'm sure it's i i know that there are lots of performers or i know that there are performers in the world who are in spite of the fact that they are performers uh they're not real self-promoters uh they're good at other things many of them are great artists but the whole marketing of something like this they're kind of uneasy with it the fact that you and all of the people involved in this are preserving an aspect of this world is a great thing. What about the Busker Hall of Fame? Uh, whatever, what do you call this podcast? Uh, no, this uh, this picking the best one of the year. What, what's it called? The inductee to the Busker Hall of the Fame. Inductee to the Busker Hall of Fame. What about this process? motivates you to do it? What what makes it important to you? Nothing about the contest or the induct in, inductation or whatever you want to call it. Nothing about that in, inspires me. Inductation. Is that a word? I don't know. I don't think so. I like it though. <laughs> so the inductees get recognized for what they've contributed to the world of street performing. And initially, Robert, I wanted to induct without question. He, we, there was no vote. It was just he helped start this thing. He died. I wanted him to be in the Hall of Fame in memory of who he was and what he had contributed to the world. And he got a gimme. He got a gimme. Well, I think he had it coming. And that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Chris Lynham was one of the first people to ever work in Covent Garden. Nils Paul, whether he knows it or not, the hat that he held, well, the hat that he invented has been used by buskers around the world for decades. And just his spirit. And his spirit. is. is and because I wasn't sure how much longer he was going to be with us. I think that was a big part of his being inducted that year, and, and I think that's fine. And then Gazo, for the next year, is because... Don't know why you nominated him. He was voted in because so many people own him as the representation of what street magic should be. Well, I agree. This year... <laughs> it's always a weird way to say, well, I agree. I agree. <laughs> and so, I, I begrudgingly, I hate begrudgingly agree. Just because of who we get. <laughs> I begrudgingly agree. Well, so when it came to this year, it's like I've been on the ballot a couple of years, and whether I've been on the ballot because I deserved it or because I created it, I didn't know and I didn't care. I really didn't care. And I don't really... I always feel awkward. And that's why I've avoided doing an interview for so long. It's because I, I don't want to be an interview. I want to capture the world. Well, and it is your birthday. 
Okay. So right. That's that's really the point of this. Is, <laughs> okay. It's my birthday. Thank you. So, and should we bring out the gift? Is she ready? Hold on. Let me check. Glenn, did you call her? <laughs> She's not ready. It's, uh, not we've ready. been planning this for months, David. Even though Glenn just looked at the the, 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 the lineup for the, the the festival and went, "Oh, you're here." Yeah. Despite that, we've worked this all out. No one else had created this world. No one else had tried to capture it yet. I mean, there had been attempts. There had been attempts. There, there been, been a few some books. written attempts. There have been some written attempts, and then Matt Chat Taylor created his documentary, and there have been other people who have created short little video clips of the world, but nothing in the context of an ongoing capturing of what this world is and some of the key players in it. And well, also, the format presented itself, which you realized. Which absolutely. You realized, like, hey, here's this new thing called podcasting. I can record these things, and we can put them out to the world. I think it's all worth doing. I think every bit of it that gets uh, what's the what's the word that gets captured, yes, is documented, is worth doing. And if what I got recognized for this year was the fact that I'm actually the guy who took that opportunity and made it happen, if that's why I'm being recognized, then I'll own it. Beyond that. I said this but, to a performer this year. Yeah. Uh, like as I was coming into the, I was got picked up at the airport here in Ottawa, and I was being driven in. And this young magician was asking me all these questions, and he's going to be here hanging out at the festival over the course of the weekend. And at a point in the conversation, I just looked at him and I said, "Don't confuse longevity with talent." I love what I do, but there are people who are better than I am within the art form. I've just been here a long time. And if you choose to think of that as some kind of greatness, then thank you. I'll accept that as a compliment. But I am still a fan of the art form. Run down the qualifications on why someone is inducted. Well, and then it was kind of arbitrary to begin with. And it right, was no, but it's been refined, and, and there is a there is criteria. criteria, right. So the criteria are basically this. You have to have been involved in the world of street theater for at least 15 years. And you have to have contributed something significant to the world of street theater that has progressed the art form and laid the foundation for something beyond who you are. That's basically it. So create something. Uh, it, there was a great, there was a great. So, so, so wait, I'm, can, I'm asking. If I may, if I may, just to wrap this up. No, a, no, 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 you may not, because a, I'm asking the questions. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Because you've been dominating this entire yeah. interview by talking through the whole fucking day. thing, David. All right, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. We barely had a chance to ask you a question because your answers are fucking 15-minute <laughs> long. Three hours <laughs> long. <laughs> it's like, here's one question. Let me tell you 15 minutes They're about it answers. first. But, right, but they are good answers. I'm going to give you a hard time. easy to interview yeah, yeah. No, it's good because then it, you don't have to really ask too much because he gets fills in all the blanks. You've already written the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but so the reason I'm asking that question is because you were saying, and it's fine. I'm, I'm gonna let this go after this, but uh, you're like, well, I'm inducted me because I created this thing. But you got to think also uh, if you've been nominated to be a part of it, and and people are reading the criteria, and you've been nominated, and you got enough votes it's it might not just be because of the podcast because there are lots of things and i think about it mostly beyond the 15 years it's really the street performer that has done it's the second part like what have they done 
who, who has contributed to the world of street theater in a way that has resonated over the years, right? And so I remember before, way, way, way before I met you, when I first started street performing, it was like, there's a website you can go to, this guy, checkerboard guy, and he's got a database for festivals. So you had, I don't know when it was, here are the festivals that exist, and it was a resource that you created for street performers. It's more, more than that. You, you did, oh, no, I'm just saying there's this one thing. I'm the, just saying these, the, there's... The cards, the super street performer. Sure. Uh, I'm just, I'm, you know, there's, there's multiple things. So it's not, you, can't, you, can't, you can't just characters. say, like, yes. if it's this podcast that, that is the reason. Like the, the fact is that you have, over the years, layered on things that have contributed to the world of street theater that have brought people together, that have gotten more knowledge out about it, got people informed. Just There's lots of things. You can't just cite this podcast as the thing that could have gotten you and also as a performer, I think the size over the years of your audience in of your of your audience and audiences in multiple different uh, venues, in festivals, in cruise ships, in Japan, in uh, corporate uh, venues, I think that your acumen in branding and in uh, promotion and in organization and in networking. I think it's all worthy of being recognized. There's a great part of Robert's interview with Al Miller. And Al's talking about a conversation he'd had. And it was, we're all part of the family. We're all part of the circle. But what is it that you bring to the circle? And I think that we, as members of the community, have a duty and a responsibility to bring something new to the circle based on whatever our particular talents are and ideally with a sense of purity and uh, generosity to promote the art form to something better than it currently is and if I've done that and if I can continue to do that, then I will do so for as long as I can. I don't think you can help but do that. I don't think it's in, within your abilities to not be able to do that. Yes. It's just natural for you to do that. You do that without even realizing that you're doing it. And I think to make a uh, uh, an attempt to go on from that and in, in the uh, Busker Hall of Fame, try to include... With each passing project, different approaches that have yet to be included. Yet. Oh yeah, There's so that so that the so that this gets captured as much scope as this world this represents. Has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, without question. And I think that's the biggest problem or the biggest challenge. Not a problem so much as a challenge is to within the context of what it takes to put each of these podcasts out because it's an enormous labor of love for yeah. all the people who are involved. But it is to be creative and selective about who we pick so that we can grow the depth and width of the family one performer at a time, one step at a time, uh, with grace and with diligence and with 
a deliberateness that really does try to capture what this community is and what we're all capable of and the history and tradition that we owe something to. Yeah. And I hope that anybody who looks at the project as it currently stands and feels, well, that doesn't really represent a part of the world that is an important part of this global busker phenomenon. I hope they'll be willing to help to contribute. Yes. It's, and, yes, it, like, and that's the biggest thing. It's like the first people who were involved were the people that we could reach out to quickly and get things done because it was Robert. And he was on a, a, a timeline that we weren't sure about. And then beyond that, we reached out to other people to start doing interviews and to start finding other people who represented that world in a broader context. And for those people who don't feel that they're being represented yet, know that we're moving towards it. Know that we include you the family is the family, and whether we get to that weird uncle today, tomorrow, or two years from now, it doesn't mean that you're not a part of this family. It just means that we haven't had time to capture you yet. Mm-hmm. Or so, we don't know that you're there. So or, please or, help us. You know, there are uncles that may not even uh, be willing to cooperate. We may have to shoot them from afar. <laughs> Those are sometimes the best kind of uncles to have. <laughs> They have the best stories for sure, and that's—I mean—that's really all it is. It's like it's a matter of capturing one person's story, a podcast at a time, and the the, the global nature of this art form, one story at a time, until we have a natural representation of who we are and what we are, and the family we're all a part of. Now that being said, and this is a question I hate to be asked, but I'm going to ask you this because I think this is a good way to wrap it up. And if you don't have one. Right now, it's fine, but do you have your, a favorite story? Because I think what we just said is a great cap on everything, but it is stories from the pitch. It is. And uh, th- we don't necessarily have to have stories in the interviews, but if you have one great story to end this thing. So it's about the 1995 Halifax Buster's Festival. Got and I'm on a beautiful pitch that's a little bit further away from the historic properties. Lovely big square pitch. I can't remember. It was branded to some market, whatever it was at the time. Beautiful big space, and they had bleachers up, and it was like one of the biggest pitches at Halifax that year. And it's early days for this brand new show that I'm doing, which has got this motor scooter involved. So it's got this tiny little motor scooter, and I pull this guy out of the audience, I lay him down. It's like this evil Knievel parody, and I end up jumping over him, I've got this little tiny jump, and he's holding a torch between his arm and one between his legs, and I jump over in the middle between the two flames. And it's this great setup, and it's this false starts, and it's like, oh, am I going to do it? Oh, I'm not going to do it. Oh, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it. All this stuff is being set up. And I get halfway through the routine, and it's a full edge, like really full, like three or four rows deep, all the way around, deep, deep, really enthusiastic crowd. And from just outside the crowd, just outside to the edge of the crowd, we hear this it's Harley Davidson starts up just outside the crowd and uh, it's like what do you do right it's got this massive cuts through the air like it cuts through the air I'm in the middle of this routine with my tiny little motor scooter like this tiny little thing that's going and at that moment that side of the crowd opens up 
and the guy on the Harley drives into the audience <laughs> with a woman on the back. It's a total like Harley with biker chick on the back scenario. And he sees the jump and he starts going <laughs> revving up and going and the guy who's lying down to get jumped over is like looking at me going, oh, what the fuck? What's going on? Are you going to let this guy run over me? Oh my God! And he gets a little bit closer, gets a little closer and then he spears around, runs around, runs a couple times, runs out of the audience, crowd goes crazy. I jump over him. Biggest sash of the festival without question. And everyone thinks, God, that was amazing. He got the guy from the Harley to come in and do that. <laughs> exactly. And it's just like this. This is brilliant. This yeah. is genius. But it was really this unexpected moment and the beauty of what street theater is of putting out into the world the notion that you're trying to do something ridiculous and then having the ridiculous come and visit you in the context of your show. And then you have to own the ridiculousness back at what's coming at you in a way that somehow everybody celebrates. And that celebration of what is capable on the street, which is not capable anywhere else, makes this venue the most spectacular place to perform in the world. Well done. It's a joy and it's a treat. And if you treat it with any less respect than the respect it deserves, you're not only doing yourself a disservice, but you're doing the whole art form a disservice. Yeah. Beautiful. That's a, that, I, don't, I can't think we can, I don't think we can top that with anything. Happy birthday, Dave. There you go. Thanks, gentlemen. Congratulations. <laughs> Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for recording, editing, and the presenting of these interviews. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com forward slash busker stories. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So if you go to your favorite app, type in stories from the pitch and download away if you're accessing this content via itunes we'd love it if you can take a moment and leave us a review and give us a five-star rating it'll take you just a minute or two and it means the world to our production team got a story to tell something you think we can improve a perform you like this interview or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor for an upcoming episode if so drop dave a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com haven't gotten enough busker hall of fame content yet well then check out our facebook page at facebook.com forward slash busker hall of fame Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And to close, we want to take a moment to raise our glass and toast someone we lost in 2016. Here's to Dick Finkel. We'll make Dick Finkel rest in peace. Cheers to that. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. Sad to see Dick go. He left a mark. I'm sure he did. On behalf of myself, Editor-in-Chief David Aiken, the checkerboard guy... Glenn Singer helped me capture this interview, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm Magic Brian. Thanks for listening. You're like unicorns in Harry Potter. I just want to drink your blood.